if you think black educators are rare, look up the statistics for a black male speech language pathologist. Very, very rare. Welcome to Black Educators Matter. This is more than a moment. It's a movement. Hey, it's Brooke. And Danielle. Welcome to Black Educators Matter. Our goal is to share the stories of 500 Black educators. We will celebrate the impact and achievements, speak truth to power, and highlight the important roles that educators play in all of our lives. We're excited to welcome today's guest to our show. As a do now, please tell us your name, your role in education, and answer the question, why do Black educators matter? All right, awesome. My name is Jonathan Love, and I am a speech-language pathologist in the schools. I contract myself out to various school districts to provide IEP services to the schools, to the parents, to the students. And why Black educators matter? Well, simply put, our children need to see someone that looks like them across the therapeutic table. They need to understand that they themselves can aspire to be a professional. They themselves can aspire to to be a Mr. Love that goes to work, that has a family, that is loving and, and caring and has all these different things. While I do provide speech and language services, there is another curriculum that is being taught to these kids that is not spoken. And that is the curriculum of you can do this, you can aspire, and you can trust me because I've been there. I've been where you are. And so our children today, more than ever, need to trust teachers, need to trust their therapists, and that trust comes from a sense of of love. And that's why Black educators matter. Okay. Very thorough answer. Thank you, Mr. Love. So I kind of hear an accent a little bit. Where are you from? So my father, he's from Jamaica. Okay. If you're hearing anything, some people say they sound like I'm from New York, but no, that's the Jamaican accent. Montego Bay. Mo Bay. Okay. So do you remember your K through eight experience? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I remember going to Dixon Elementary School with a phenomenal principal, Dr. Joan D. Chrysler. And my school was the epitome of a village. We had an African store in the school that the students actually worked. It was Mrs. Chrysler at the time. She brought in the C program, which was students engaged in engineering. Of course, we had the National Junior Beta And we had the COA National Bank. At the time, it was a Black-owned bank. They came into our school to open up a bank in the school. And so we were learning about Kwanzaa. We were learning about Black economics. We were learning 
about so much through K through eighth that I think my elementary school was probably more advanced than most high schools. But it was for, it was the mere fact that she wanted us to embrace the culture of being an African-American student. And what does that mean? And before you can even understand what that means, you have to understand where we come from. You have to understand that we were kings and queens. We were in charge of, of trades. We were rich. And so she brought that idea to our elementary school, and it was phenomenal. Okay. I'm excited for y'all. I'm a little bit jealous, too. But you said Dixon, so that means you're a Chicago native, right? Yeah, Chicago, born and raised. Okay. So I'm sure. Yeah. So I went to Whitney Young High School under another phenomenal educator, Dr. Kenner. And Dr. Kenner was the same way. She wanted the students to embrace their culture. Now, of course, at Whitney Young, it was more diverse, which was fine because of the foundation that Dr. Chrysler put into us. We felt like we could compete with any race. You know, we felt like we we could compete with anybody just because of our strong ancestral heritage. So went to Whitney Young and that was phenomenal. We had a lot of African-American professors. We had some, some white professors, some Asian professors, but our black professors, we felt more in tune with them. We felt like they were auntie and uncle, not to say that we didn't have that same rapport with, with the other professors, but it was something about seeing that having that African-American professor that just made you say, all right, if I have a problem, I don't mind going to see them. They may, they may talk me down. They may curse me out, just like how my mama may curse me out or my auntie may curse me out. But I know that they're doing it in love as opposed to another race chopping you down. You don't know what the underlying meaning is behind it. So, yeah, that was a great experience. So how did your strong elementary school experience and your affirming high school experience influence you to choose college? And did you go to college knowing that you were going to work in education? Yes. So my mom and dad were special ed teachers growing up. So I always, always knew that I wanted that schedule. I wanted the schedule of working from August to May and then having my summers off. So when it was time to make a decision for my career, I'm a person who stutters. And because I stuttered, my parents took me to a speech pathologist. His name was Mr. Arnell Brady. And he is the one that helped me to overcome my stuttering so that I could be, you know, a very proficient speaker. And because of that experience, and he, he's also an African-American, which is like rare. If you think Black educators are rare, look up the statistics for a Black male speech language pathologist. Very, very rare. So he and my father had a conversation with me and you know we decided together that I was going to go into speech. The decision to go to an HBCU 
Hey. It was like like I went I went to Xavier. I chose Xavier, Louisiana. Okay. Uh, yeah, Xavier of New Orleans in Louisiana. One because it was HBCU. Two because I have aunties and uncles down in New Orleans and in Baton Rouge, so I knew I was going to get some some good home cooking. I knew I knew that I was going to definitely have some support if I went down there, and. It's crazy. When I went to go visit the University of Illinois, because I did get accepted there, it was so big and vast. I felt lost. I really felt lost. Like, man, how do I fit in? When I went to go visit Xavier, when I went to go visit Howard, when I went to go visit Morehouse, it was a certain sense of community that I felt immediately. And I don't know, like, I I can't say if I would have went to a, a PWI at first, would I have gotten lost in, in the shuffle? I don't know, but the feeling that I had when I went there, I didn't like it. I didn't like it. But when I went to the HBCU campuses, I knew I belonged. I knew. I had, I had a great time at Xavier. Awesome time. Shout out to Xavier. I applied to Xavier. I got accepted, but I ended up choosing the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. We did opposite. <laughs> yes, we did opposite. But did. I love it because all of it influences who we are and how we approach this work. So I love that you come from a family of educators. I love that you've had this super affirming educational experience, similar to Brooke. I'm a little jelly, but it's okay. Does a shared identity and connectedness exist between you and your Black students? So now as a professional in the field, especially as a speech language pathologist working within the special special education realm, you have the opportunity to work with so many different kinds of students. When you meet Black students, do you find that you all have a shared sense of identity? And if so, how did you recognize it? Interesting. Now, my first couple of years, I would say yes. Over the years, there's been a disconnect more so from the side of the students towards me. Now, I've always felt connected, always. But I don't think African-American students really respect that connectedness nowadays. It seems like there's been a shift in our children. There's been a shift in respecting authority figures, respecting teachers, respecting adults in the building. And so we're trying to connect with them And it seems like they're trying to disconnect. But because I'm a Black educator, I don't give up on them, right? I don't look at it as they're bad or or they don't want it. I'm looking at it as there's a shift that's happening and I have to fight even harder through this shift to connect because I'm not going to let you go until we get this connection. I'm not going to let up on you until we get this connection. And I feel like when I'm working in some of these charter schools, I feel like the other race of teachers tend to give up a little quicker than an African-American teacher will when it comes to trying to get the best out of that student. When we're talking about special education, there's an influx of referrals for Black boys. And now Black girls now. And actually, that's also shifted. So I began in 2005. This is 2022 now. 
I've seen the shift between more males being put up for special ed or trouble to now I'm seeing a lot of females fighting and being defiant and and being rough. And they're not excelling in the classrooms now. And so when these teachers are, you know, in, in their first marking period, when they're giving up, the first thing they want to do is refer these kids to special ed, special ed, special ed. But the sad part about it is because I'm connected, I'm going to let my students know that even though you have an IEP, even though they diagnose you as slow learning, you can still learn. You want to know why? Because nobody taught you how to use that cell phone. Nobody taught you how to get on, on your gaming device. Nobody taught you certain things. You picked it up. So you've proven to me that you can learn. And what we need to do as educators is find a way to connect even more with this technology-driven culture. But yeah, it hurts me because I'm constantly fighting teachers saying, no, this student does not need to go into special ed. You just need to find a way to connect with them. You need to find a way to understand how they're learning. You need to understand why they are resisting you. They're not resisting you because they're bad. They're not resisting you because they come from a low socioeconomic home. There's a reason for the resistant, and you have to find that out. Okay, Mr. Love. You you talking like somebody that's been teaching since 2005. Really? <laughs> and, and if no one has told you lately, like, thank you a million times over for not giving up, I gave up. I started off in the classroom, and I couldn't. Like, I couldn't. And mainly because of the resources, but absolutely. And now, also too, I forgot to tell you all, I was a principal for two years. Oh man, walk us so, through your resume, yeah, please, because we didn't okay. ask. So, so you started in two thousand five. Walk us through. Absolutely. So I was working for Chicago Public Schools, speech pathologist, and man, they had me at six different schools. I I was overwhelmed trying to figure out how to go to all these IEP meetings evaluate, give therapy. It was crazy bananas. So then I said, okay, I'm going to come out of CPS. So then I began to work with agencies. So they would place you in different suburbs. So I was in Bellwood, Maywood. That's where I met the great Annette Griffin, speech language pathologist. And so I'm doing this and I ended up at Rich East High School. And the principal came to me and said, Mr. Love, I think you would be great for going for your type 75. Now, for those who are not in Chicago or Illinois, a type 75 is your master's in educational administration. This will allow you to have an administrative role in the schools. Well, as a speech pathologist, I just, I didn't have a direction with that, but because he came to me and said, do it, I did it. So I spent two years at Governor State University and I got my type 75. Man, after graduating, that summer, I interviewed in Dalton School District 149, and they ultimately gave me the position of principal of the School of Fine Arts. <laughs> it was one of the most rewarding experiences and one of the most taxing. And that's where I truly learned where the lack and where the gaps are in urban education. 
after two years, I had enough. You know, there was a lot of stuff that I won't speak on, but I just had enough and and I just left. But those gaps truly, truly come from a disconnect. A disconnect in the school, a disconnect even at home. We have some parents who truly want to be there for their child, but they don't know how to. And it's not because they're young, because I think if you go in our history, we, we've always had young parents. But once again, a shift. There was a shift somewhere in where parents began to disrespect education. And their kids saw this. So they come into the school with this disrespect for education. And the parents don't know how to really help because they themselves are still trying to figure out life. They themselves are still trying to understand where they belong in this world. See, when I was growing up, my, my mom and dad knew who they were and they knew who they wanted my sister and I to be. I can't say that for the parents nowadays. I know that they want the best for their kids and for them Giving them the best is making sure that they have Jordans on their feet or making sure that they have a Gucci belt and, and Prada shoes and, and they're up to date because that's their way of showing their children love. Now, for me, my parents showed me love by paying for private speech therapy sessions. My parents showed me love by taking me to the museum and the zoo. I didn't get the Jordans. I didn't have good clothes until I got to high school. And so the gap when you're trying to enrich and empower the parents and they're resisting you, then you understand why the student is resisting you. And now you have this resistance that makes you tired, that makes you fatigued, that makes you say, what am I doing this for? Especially when you get your check every two weeks and you're looking at it like, Really? <laughs> Understand this. Pause the conversation. I'm trying to get you to learn so that you can be great and you're fighting me. And not only are you fighting me, but your parents is fighting me. So I had a teacher who kicked the kid out of the classroom because the teacher asked them to write a paragraph and the student wrote three sentences. And the teacher said, no, 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 no. Come on now. If you can't write more than three, then you don't need to be in this classroom. So the student bucked back at the teacher, and now he's in the office calling his mama. I'm thinking the mama's going to come up and, you know, have the teachers back and say, you need to be able to write more sentences. But mom came up and was like, she had no right to throw my, to throw my son out the classroom. Totally negated the fact of excellence. Wait a minute here. Do you not care that your son is unable to write more than three sentences for a paragraph? You're more concerned about how someone is treated than concerned about the behavior. And that's my message. If there's any parents listening right now, please don't let the first question be, well, what did you do? What were you doing? Always ask yourself, 
if my child would not have done the antecedent behavior, would there be a problem? And so sometimes as a Black educator, it is easy to have those conversations with Black parents. But sometimes it's, it's not. Sometimes it's not. And I feel like sometimes being Black now almost gives parents the comfortability to be more disrespectful because they feel so comfortable. See, being comfortable can go both ways. Being comfortable can go the way of, okay, Mr. Love, I see I see what, you, what you're trying to do. I'm here for you. Let's get it. Also, being comfortable means that you can come in there with your scarf on, with your white T-shirt on, and cursing me out and not feel bad. So, yeah, is there a connection? That connection is almost like how we were at the beginning of this meeting, in and out. <laughs> in and out. <laughs> in and, out. and you know what? You bring up a lot of excellent points. And I've been taking notes this whole time. And so I wrote like, the gaps come from this disconnect. So this resistance, this disrespect, and it is definitely a difference between becoming comfortable and becoming too familiar. And it sounds like instead of building that relationship on the connectedness and like surrounding ourselves around this goal of getting the children from A to B, it's like, no, now you're becoming too familiar with me and you're not respecting the role I'm playing. So that takes me to my next question. What is the state of education in Black America? And how did we get here? The disconnect, the gaps, the parents and how they feel about education, how that is so very different Uh, for some of the parents, than your parents felt about education. So what overall would you say is the state of education in Black America, and how did we get here? So the state of Black education is we are failing our kids. That's the state right now. How did we get here? Well, we got here because when I was going to school, we had the Iowa test of basic skills. I don't remember it being pressure on the schools that says, if you don't have this amount of students at this level, we're going to close you down. One of the reasons why we are here is because we've let people who are not educators make decisions as to how to run schools. While education is important, education looks many different ways. And when we're talking about the development of a child and the development of their cognitive abilities, we have to understand and we also have to respect the fact that some children may cognitively mature slower than others. So just because they're not getting it at this level does not mean that they're not going to get it later on. Just because they're not getting it at this level does not mean that the teacher is doing a horrible job. Neither does it mean that you have to close down my school. Neither does it mean that you have to close down all the neighborhood schools to create these charter schools that are created to, quote unquote, be academic excellence. We have to go back to looking at education for what it is. It's education. It's not a brochure. And when I say that, I mean, 
education is not something that you just brag on. Oh, guess what? We have a 100% attendance rate and we have 100% graduation. That's, that's brochure talking points. Education should be, we have a bank in our school. We have a store in our school. We have this, we have this, we have this. And we have teachers who've been here five plus years. Ask any school right now, how long have their teachers remained in that school building? I guarantee you most of these charter schools can't say that they've had teachers for five plus years because they're putting too much pressure on the wrong things. See, when, when we're talking about being connected, we have to make sure that the turnover rate is low, which means that we have to lessen the stress. I did not say lessen the expectations. I'm saying lessen the stress that you put onto a school to remain open. We do not put the stress on hospitals to say that you all have to have 100% patients be cured. We don't do that, right? Hospitals are there to treat, to continue to treat. The same thing as schools. We are treating these children. And so the state of education, the state of Black education is that we need to take back control of what we define as academic excellence. Academic excellence can be a trade program that teaches our students about plumbing, about electricity, about mechanical issues and editing, videography, and all these different type of trades that will get you success that does not necessarily have the track of a collegiate academic outlook. It's okay to say that all kids are not going to go to college. And see, we have these schools who want to put out brochure points. All of our kids go to college. But guess what? They dropped out. These kids ended up dropping out of college. So just because you go to college does not mean that you were successful. It doesn't. You will not really understand success until that child becomes an adult and then can say and come back to your school and say, man, you know what? I was this, but now I'm this. That's academic excellence. And you can't measure that in one semester. You can't measure that in one school year. It's a lifelong process. And you're creating these black robots that can do a math problem all these intricate kind of ways, but they cannot critically think. And they cannot critically engage into abstract ideas and in this abstract way of living. Most of these kids, they get to college and don't know what to do because they're robots. When you ask them to write their thoughts, when you ask them to express themselves, they don't know how to. And so the state of Black education, we have succumbed to the government regulating what education should look like instead of, instead of us saying to them, you have it wrong. 
you have it completely wrong. You need to include educators in your decision-making. You need to include us. You need to include us. You need to include us. This is just one of the many stories, and we hope to keep the conversation going. Connect with us on Facebook and Twitter at BEM Chicago. Follow us on Instagram at blackeducators.matter and visit us online at www.blackeducatorsmatter.org. And now, back to the conversation. Mr. Love, your answers are so layered and it's amazing because they literally lead into the next question. As a matter of fact, because they've been so thorough, they kind of omit some of the questions because you've already answered them. One of the questions, and I'm sure we don't even have to elaborate on this because you already talked about it. Do you think that schools are designed for for children of color? No. Okay. <laughs> that's that's kind of, I kind of figured that's what you were going to say. <laughs> I don't. I don't. I don't. Man, listen, children of color, man, we are, we, we are creative. We, we can't sit down. Are you crazy? Like, listen, listen, you want me to sit down in a, in a 45 minute professional development. I guarantee you about 10 or 15 teachers are going to at least go to the bathroom once about 10 or 15 teachers are going to at least look at their cell phone about four or five times during the presentation. But yet we expect these students to sit down and be quiet. Don't move. What? Don't move. When I give speech and language services, my kids are up and they're moving around. One day the principal came in and said, Miss Love, shouldn't they be sitting down? No. Why should they be sitting down? We're talking. We're communicating. Learning happens this way. Because we've been brainwashed to think that sitting down and being quiet is learning. No, it's control. It's, it's control. You can also have control by allowing movement. It's okay. Having different chairs, letting the kids bounce up and down. Like one kid, he was bouncing up and down. And it drove the teacher crazy. Why can't you just sit still? Because his genetic makeup doesn't allow him to. Like we have to understand, we have some genetic makeups that, man, we, we are active people, man. We, we are creative people. Yeah, I, I'm sorry. Whew. You're not wrong. And it's so interesting because there was another special education teacher that we interviewed and she was talking about Black boys and she echoed similar sentiments. And I've seen, like I have seen schools and heard of schools where kids can't eat. They can't talk while they eat. Right. Like, like you just need right. to sit quietly and eat. And yes. when you get into yes. school to eat breakfast, sit quietly, walk quietly, move quietly. And it's like, so... When do the children get to express themselves? And I love that you said, take back control as to how we define academic excellence. With Black Educators Matter, one of our taglines is make excellence equitable. And it's because we recognize excellence looks so incredibly different. It's the diversity of thought. It's the diversity in the way we move, the way we think. But with many of the schools that operate under these white supremacist principles, not principles like the actual administrators, but like the system, white supremacy is enshrined in our educational system. 
we know is broken and we want to create space for black children to be able to experience excellence and to be recognized as excellent not just by those brochure talking points that schools like to highlight so another thing we're really focusing on for season two is black joy and black jubilation especially in education And you have described so many great and affirming experiences you've had in education. Tell us about a time, and actually before I even ask the question, the definition of jubilation is a feeling of great happiness and triumph. Tell us about a time where you witnessed Black jubilation within education. Oh, man. Let me think of one. Okay, so 2010. I was working in the Bellwood. And so there was a student that was known as a behavioral problem child. And so it's funny, I'm a big guy, right? So every school that I've worked at, they've always asked me to, you know, can you please go talk to this, to the boys and and see, can you do something with them? And I would take it on. So one day I saw him in the hallway. He was cursing at his teacher, cursing him out, cursing him out, talk to him hey, brother, you can't do that. You can't do that because you're going to get suspended. You're going to go home. And I, Well, I want to go home. Why do, you, why do you want to go home? Because I can just play my game. Took him into a room. I said, how much are your Jordans? $200. I said, okay, how many Jordans do you have at, at home? I got about 10 of them, Mr. Love. I said, okay, that's, that's like $2,000. Cool. So I broke it down to him and said, all right, now, if you stay at home, then you're not making any money. He said, what? I don't make any money coming to school. I said, yes, you do. When you go to school, you're here to learn how to make money, whether you're going to be a competitor, whether you're going to be a professor, whatever the case may be. This is this is how you're going to create your money. So you can always buy yourself some Jordans. So then he goes home. He talks to his mom. I guess he tells his mom the story that I gave. He came back to school and the teacher immediately said, are we going to have a problem like how we had yesterday? And I thought that was going to set him off, right? Because, like, why are you bringing up what happened yesterday? This is a brand new day. The boy turned to him and said, you're not because I'm here to make my money. The professor didn't, you know, the, the teacher didn't understand exactly what he meant by making his money. And so he came to me later on that day. He didn't know that I saw him in the hallway. He said, Miss Love, I made my money today. I said, oh, I said, what, you you was able to stay in the classroom? I stayed in the classroom the entire day. This boy never was able to stay in his classroom for more than two or three hours out the day. He was always missing instruction, always missing, always missing. By me putting into his mind the fact that him going to the classroom was equivalent to him making that money, he felt so good about it that he came to me and said, I made my money today. See, you can't get that on a test. You can't put a statistic on that. And from that day on, he stayed in that classroom and he worked his butt off. And nobody could really understand why. And it's okay. I'm happy that he was able to remain in the classroom. Now, I don't know what happened to him because I left the school district because they want to keep the contract that my agency had with them. So I'm not quite sure. 
But that's another reason why we need to have teachers remaining in the schools. We could do these longitudinal studies to see what effect did we have on that child. That was cool because I sat back in my chair and a little tear came down my eye only because I know that I've been very blessed. The Lord has blessed me so much because he gave me a mom and a powerful dad. My dad put into me so much that there's no way that I can go into a school and not give to these students that may not have a father that I had. No possible way. So I do have a tender spot for them because I could have easily been a student that was put into special education, a student that was misbehaving and and went the other way. I wasn't. I was the student that made the honor roll, went to a good high school, went to a good college, got my master's, got two master's, not because I'm so great, but because of what my father and my mother put into me. Because of what those Black educators, the the Dr. Chryslers and the Dr. Kenners, the Miss Jacksons, the Mrs. Mathunes, they put all this into me, that how dare I ever go into a school and not give it back? And so, yeah, so that, that made me cry because that's something that my dad would have told me to kind of get me going. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to, to get emotional like that, but. No, it's fine. Like, and look, we encourage it. But, and I don't even think you realize like the affirmations that you put in that young man's life when you said, I'm coming to school to make my, make my money. Had we had educators, you know, talking to students like that, I know that we would be better off because a lot of students feel like education is useless now. So yeah. if they looked at it, you know, in that regard, yeah. I'm sure we'd be better off. But you did mention a shift, right? You kept yes. talking about this shift, this shift, this shift. So do you think that shift was COVID? How has COVID-19 impacted man, your educational experience? Um, man, COVID definitely made everybody lazy. COVID brought about some good things, right? It, it made us really appreciate Zoom. But when it came to the instruction, because see, we tend to forget that education is learning. Learning happens every day. I'm learning how to lose weight. I'm learning how to, to be a, a social media influencer. I'm learning. I'm learning. We, we all are learning. So if we take the concept of learning, there's a certain type of discipline that has to accompany learning. Well, when we had COVID and when we had the pandemic, we lost that discipline. We had students waking up at any time of the day. We had students that didn't feel like they had to log into school and they're just watching these videos or they're just following the teacher. It was difficult, especially first grade, second grade. It was, it was hard. So I don't know these learners that's going to come from COVID. They're having a hard time paying attention. Their attention span is like five minutes. 
if you look at YouTube or if you look at any type of app that these kids are watching now, it changes every five minutes or every two or three, three minutes. Like just, just watch a cartoon. The actual scenes, the scenes of each cartoon are shorter and shorter and it's making our children's attention span shorter and shorter. So as a teacher, you have to come up with all these different ways to engage your child, to engage your student, or they're going to call you the B word. Boring. This is boring. This is boring. I'm bored. I'm like, whoa, God, leave. <laughs> I would have loved for my teacher to have put on a movie. You put on a movie for these kids now? Boring. What do you want to watch? YouTube, TikTok. Like, oh my God. And the TikTok videos are short, right? We had music videos that were about five minutes long. You have to sit there and watch it and uh, analyze. But I want you all to really understand where the shift is coming and how the shift is being manifested. I want you to watch the TikTok videos and how long they last. I want you to watch their little YouTube videos and how long they last because that is being transferred into the classroom. And they're not able to follow a 30-minute lesson because their brains is geared towards five-minute shifts, five-minute increments, increments, increments. That is very, very fair. It's an incredible observation. And I don't think we will really understand how COVID-19 has impacted all of us until maybe five, 10 years down the line where they can start to look at some of that data, like those longitudinal studies you were talking about. You have been just, as Brooke said, you just been dropping gems this whole episode and it has truly been a pleasure. One final, not super final, but the second to last question that we want to ask you is, so you have been in this field since 2005, brought up by special educators. What advice do you have for first year educators? And that can include um, those service providers like speech language pathologists or any therapists in school. So first year in the educational system, what advice would you have for them? My my advice would probably get them in trouble. So there's okay, so there's two tracks to this. The first advice is to is to keep a job, meaning that you follow what the principal is telling you, you follow the curriculum that the school is giving you, you follow, you follow, you follow. You you will keep a job that way. If you want to evoke change in your students. You have to first listen. The first day, the first week should not include instruction. You should be talking to your children. They should be talking back to you. You should be playing games. You should be creating rapport. Don't just hop into the academics. Leave that alone. Get to know them. Get to love them so they can trust you. When they trust you, you can then put expectations on them because they understand that the expectation comes difficulty. But that difficulty is understood because I know that it's coming from a foundation of love. So I'm able to withstand you telling me I didn't do a good job today 
do better because the first two weeks you were pouring in love to me. You didn't just come in and, and you was about academics. See, if you really want your kids to really, really love you, don't be so academic. Well, I'm trying to get you so that you can pass this test. Guess what? That means that you're here for your stats and you're not here for me. So boo on you. If I'm having a hard day, I don't care about your stats. I don't care about about your scores because you're all about your scores. Forget about your scores because I don't have heat in my house. I just saw mommy and daddy fighting. I just saw two of my friends get killed. Somebody is in prison. I'm scared to walk home. I'm embarrassed about something. But who knows? Because you're so into your scores. You're so into your curriculum. You got to follow this and follow that. And it's like you have lost the kids. And now you're, you're sitting up here creating grades. I had this idea and I still may follow through with it. Creating a tutorial program. It was going to be called Learn, Not Earn. And what that means is this. I saw many students earn an A, but not learn to be an A student. It's a difference. You can earn an A by redoing an assignment, or you can get some extra credit. You can you can do this and do that to earn from a C back to a B or from a B to an A. But are, is that kid an A student, though? What does an A student mean? Does that child go home and study? Does that child know how to work through difficulties? That's the A student. And so we are teaching these kids that our stats are so important that we want you to earn this A and to earn and to follow this script. See, nowadays, it's not an academic test. It's a language test. It's a language test because now they're asking even for math. They're asking the students to explain how they got the answer. That's a speech and language uh, treatment goal. Expressive language skills. And our kids don't have it because you're not allowing them to talk in the classroom. Our kids don't have it because when they come into the car from school, you're on your cell phone as a parent talking to your girlfriend or your boyfriend or whoever. They don't have it because who is talking to them for more than five or 10 minutes a day? Yeah, listen, okay. If there is anybody that should emphasize the importance of talking with your children, it is a speech and language pathologist. Yeah. Hello. You have to. The crazy part is they don't sometimes know how to communicate themselves. That's fair. And you know, it's so crazy when you said the curriculum is leaning more towards like language based. I'm in a master's program now. And I look at some of these questions like, what are y'all really trying to convey yes. here? So if yes. I'm in my 30s and I'm having a time, I can't even imagine yes. what a fifth or sixth grader is going through. And do you know that these parents are struggling to even help? Yep. Listen, when my daughter was bringing home some of her math homework, I had to YouTube it. Like these, these different ways of getting to the problem. I'm like, what? Excuse me? This I new didn't... math got the community in a chokehold. Okay. Oh my 
God. Oh, my God. So I can appreciate them trying to bring in the verbiage and the language, but, man, you have teachers who don't really understand what they're, what they're trying to teach the kids. And so these kids are just, they're just stuck because there's a, there's a certain cognitive load that you have to have to be able to even perform those high-level types of math problems, which is fine. But if my child is on a track to become a dancer and is going to, you know, dance in, in the Joffrey Ballet, man, I don't want you to put all that stress because of this way of doing math because there's so many different ways to get to a problem, so many different ways to get to a solution. Let's relax. Let's calm down. Everybody, let's just breathe. Get off of educators' backs. Like, education has become the punching bag of society. We can just go and punch on teachers because y'all not doing what y'all need to do. Stop. Leave us alone. Let us let let us do what we do. What are you doing? What you say? You don't go up to their job and yeah, I go to your job because you what to do? Yeah, let me do mine. But Mr. Love, you constantly talk about how your parents constantly poured into you. So I know that if you were to give recognition to anybody, they would obviously (laughs) come first. But in addition to them, who else would you like to thank? You listed an entire slew. I went to black schools my entire life. So when you started naming them, I was impressed. I don't think that's ever happened before. So I was fortunate, man. Like Dr. Chrysler, I want you all to look her up. Dr. Joan, J-O-A-N. Last name is Chrysler, C-R-I-S-L-E-R. And then Dr. Joyce Kenner. Those two educators, phenomenal. Because they really led the teachers to invoke community but yeah like miss mrs christer man or dr dr christer now when i became a principal i went to go talk to her to to like navigate this world of of education she always told me always love the kids loving the kids doesn't mean that you feel bad for them loving the kids means that you treat them as if they are your own and when you do that Man, it puts a certain onus on you. It makes you want to go out to the Dollar Tree and spend your money. It makes you want to go to Walmart to spend your money. It makes you want to put a smile on their face. It makes you want to get it in their butts when they need to get that too. But Dr. Chrysler, she she was phenomenal. And it's crazy because most students don't even really know their, their principals or even Man, Miss Chris, you talked to any one of her students. She was present. You knew who she was. You knew the influence that she had on those teachers. And then the second person I have to give, I got to give props to, Dr. Arnell Brady, speech, language pathologist, look him up too. He's the one, he was my speech therapist when I was five years old. He's the one that mentored me in speech. He's the one that helped me to open up my own speech and language practice. And he's the one that I still talk to even to this day. If it was not for him, I would have had a hard time at the University of Iowa. I went to Xavier, which is HBCU. For my grad program, I went to Iowa, where I was dealing with some professors who thought that I just 
I was this poor black kid that got this fellowship to go to their school. No, lady, I'm smart and intelligent. That's why I got my my little fellowship, not because I'm poor and needy, because they felt like I was taking the spot of more deserving white students. No, here, here they are taking these poor students from Xavier, from New Orleans, and, and, and they're taking the spots of these whites. No, no, I'm just as smart. I'm just as intelligent as any student that you could have possibly put in there. If it wasn't for Mr. Brady always pouring into me and calming me down and telling me there's a way to fight this. Don't go in there, Malcolm X, because you'll get kicked out. You have to understand where they're coming from, but you remain who you are. And once you get that degree, then you make sure that you go back and you empower your people. So Dr. Christopher and Mr. Arnell Brady. Thank you for naming the names. Thank you for naming your parents. Of course, you named your parents, so I got to name mine because the way that we <laughs> named was through my mom, who is yes. a Black speech-language pathologist. You all are such a small population, but small but mighty. You better all elevate our voices. I was about to say small <laughs> but mighty. Okay. So, Mr. Love, you mentioned having your own practice. Is there a website or social media that you have where if people wanted to connect with you that they could? Yeah, so it's it's all under construction because I'm, I'm about to launch a brand new scope of my practice. So right now, maybe I can come back for another interview with you all. By that time, I will have the like relaunch of the Love Institute. So the name of it is the Love Institute. But I've been I've been holding some of these gems for so long that it's, it's time for me to now put it out there in a different kind of package. So just stay tuned. It's, it's coming. It's coming. We love it. You see what I did there? Yeah, yeah I love it. I love it. I love it. Yes. So everything that you have done in life on this episode and what you will continue to do in the future, we just want to thank you for sharing that and just say that everything that you have done, it was, it is, and it always will be worth it. So thank you. Thank no, you, thank Mr. Love. Thank you all. And, and listen, I appreciate you all putting the time into this. This is important. You know, this is what helps shifts the culture and educators, they need to, to have you all present so that they can tell their story. So many times educators can't tell their story. You know, so many times they, you know, we hear everybody talking about education except for educators. Why? Because they're in the classrooms teaching. So I give you two kudos for giving teachers a platform. You're right. We do what we can Thank you for listening to today's episode of Black Educators Matter. Remember, make excellence equitable and thank a Black teacher today.